Chapter Seven of An Eye for an Eye by William LeCue. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Seven. Eva Glasslin. I glanced behind me, but saw no sign of Boyd. Of a sudden, it crossed my mind that he had not been present at our first discovery. Therefore, expecting a man to keep the appointment, he had allowed her to pass the spot unnoticed. The appearance of that neat figure before me, the figure of the woman over whose beauty I had mourned as dead, was in itself a most startling fact, adding still another feature to the already dark and inscrutable mystery. I wanted to have a word with Boyd and ask his advice, for I knew not how to act in such unexpected circumstances. One of the victims was actually keeping an appointment with an accomplice of the assassin for there seemed no doubt that murder had been committed by some secret means. When she passed me I noticed the queer, half-suspicious glance she cast at me with those large blue eyes of hers, a glance in which anxiety was mingled with terror and despair. Evidently she had sought some one whom she had not been able to find, and was disappointed in consequence. With the silhouette of her figure before me like some phantom which I was endeavoring to chase in vain, I strolled on at a respectable distance, endeavoring to look unconcerned. I saw what a strikingly smart figure hers was, how slim the waist, how wide and well-rounded the hips, and how through the bodice of her dress was shown the outline of those narrow French corsets, mere bands for the waist which only women with superb figures ever dare to wear. Her skirt of fine black cloth hung in folds unusually graceful, for London skirts are always more or less bunchy dragging behind and rising in front, unless made by the first-class houses in Regent Street or Bond Street. London dressmakers cannot cut a skirt well. But her gown was a model of simplicity and good fit, evidently the creation of some expensive lady's tailor. Her hair in the full light of day was not golden-brown as I had believed it to be, but really auburn, and her black hat suited her admirably. From moment to moment I feared lest she should glance back and discover me following her, but fortunately she kept straight on at the same even pace, passing out of the park by Story's Gate, and continuing along Great George Street until she entered the bustle of Parliament Street. Here, fearing she might escape me, I was compelled to approach nearer at risk of being discovered, and even then was utterly undecided how to act. My first impulse was to walk up to her introduce myself, and tell her of the circumstances in which I had discovered her in that house, apparently lifeless. On reflection, however, I judged that by her presence in the park she was acquainted with the assassin or his associate, and that by keeping close watch upon her I might discover more than by at once exposing my hand. There seemed in her very appearance in that deep morning something grim, weird, mysterious. At the corner of Parliament Street, outside the steamy tea-rooms, she stood for a few moments gazing anxiously up and down, as if in search of an omnibus. A man approached her, crying the second edition of the Comet, a copy of which she purchased eagerly, holding it small and placing it within the folds of her sunshade. Why had she done that? I wondered. Did she expect to find in that paper an exposure of the secret tragedy of the previous night? I stood reading some excursion timetables outside the railway booking office on the opposite corner, watching her furtively. From her manner I could plainly see how nervous and excited she was. 
After some hesitation she turned and walked along to King Street, where she entered the telegraph office and dispatched the telegram. She evidently knew that part of London, or she would not have known the whereabouts of that office hidden down the short side street. I waited in Parliament Street until her return, and unnoticed strode back behind her to the corner of Bridge Street, where she at length entered a taxi and drove off. From the telegram I might, I thought, obtain some clue, but alas, telegrams are secret, and I should be unable to get a glance at it. To apply at the office would be useless. The police might perhaps obtain permission to read it, but so many dispatches are daily handed in there that to trace any particular one is always a difficult matter. I was divided in my impulses. Should I go back to King Street and make instant application regarding the telegram, so that it might be marked and easily traced afterwards, or should I follow the taxi which at that moment was crossing Westminster Bridge? I decided upon the latter course, and jumping into another motor pointed out the taxi I desired to follow. Our drive was not a long one, only to Waterloo Station, the busy platform of the loop line. Here I could easily conceal myself in the crowd of persons every moment arriving and departing, and as I stood near the booking office I heard her ask for a first-class ticket to Fullwell, a rather pleasant and comparatively new suburban district between Twickenham and Hampton. The Shepperton train was already in the station, therefore she at once took her seat while I entered another compartment in the front of the train. I did this in order to be able to alight quickly, leave the station before her, and thus avoid recognition. The journey occupied about three-quarters of an hour, but at length we drew into the little rural station situated in a deep cutting, and ere the train stopped I sprang out, passed the barrier, and leaped up the steps, escaping ere the gate was closed by the ticket inspector. By this quick movement I gained several minutes upon her, for the barrier was closed and alighting passengers were not allowed to leave before the train had again moved off. The high road from London opened right and left, one way leading back to Strawberry Hill, the other out to New Hampton. I felt certain that she would walk in the direction of the latter place, therefore I started off briskly until I came to a small wayside inn which I entered, and going to the window of the bar parlour called for refreshment, at the same time keeping a keen lookout for her passing. Several persons who had come by train hurried by, and at first I believed she had taken the opposite direction, but at last she came, holding her skirts daintily and picking her way, for it had been raining and the path was muddy. She, however, was not alone. By her side walked a young, rather handsome man, about twenty-five, who wore tennis flannels and who had apparently met her at the station. She was laughing merrily as she passed while he strode on with a light airy footstep indicative of happiness. "'There's a lady just gone past,' I exclaimed quickly, turning to the innkeeper's wife, who had just brought in my glass of beer. "'I often see her about. Do you know who she is?' With woman's curiosity she went to the door and looked out after her. "'Oh, that's Lady Glasslyn's daughter,' she said. "'Lady Glasslyn's daughter?' I echoed in surprise. "'Yes, it's Miss Ava, and the young gent with her is Fred Langdale, the son of the great sugar refiner up in London. They both live here close by. Lady Glasslyn, a widow, is not at all well off, and lives along the Hollies, the big white house with a garden in front on this side of the way, while the Langdales have a house further on the road to Hampton, overlooking Bushy Park.' "'Oh, that's who they are,' I said, quite unconcernedly 
but secretly delighted with this information. "'And who is this Lady Glasslyn? Has she lived here long?' "'Nearly a year now,' the good woman answered. Then confidentially she added, "'They are come down swells, I fancy. That they've got no money is very evident, for the tradespeople can't get their bills paid at all. Why, only last week Jim Horton, the gas company's man, was in here, and I heard him tell his laborers that he's got orders to cut the gas off at the Hollies because the bill wasn't paid. Then they must be pretty hard up, I observed. Many aristocratic families come down in the world. The name of Glasslyn puzzled me. It sounded familiar. Who was her ladyship's husband, do you know? No, sir, I've heard several stories. One was how that he was a baronet who led an exploring party somewhere in South America and died of fever and another that he was a shady individual who was connected with companies in the city. But nobody here knows the truth, I think. A glance at de Brett or Burke when I returned to my office would quickly settle that point, I reflected. Therefore, having obtained all the information I could from her, I wished her good day and left. Along the Hampton Road I strolled in the direction the pair had taken, and in the distance saw the mysterious Ava take leave of her companion and enter a house while he lifted his hat and walked on. I proceeded slowly, passing the hollies on the opposite side of the way. It was a rather large place, decidedly old-fashioned, standing back in its own grounds and approached by a carriage drive, a three-storied red-brick house with those plain windows surrounded by white wooden beams of the early Georgian era. In the old-world garden, hidden by a high wall, grew a profusion of roses and wallflowers which diffused a sweet scent as I passed, and half the house seemed hidden by ivy and creepers. The small lawn in front with its laurels and monkey-trees were well kept, and the place seemed spick and span and altogether comfortable. As I passed I fancied I saw a black-robed figure standing at one of the ground-floor windows. What if she recognized me? I dared not to look around, but kept on my way, walking through New Hampton, past the long wall of Bushy Park, until I came to Old Hampton Town, whence, half an hour later, I took train back to Waterloo. I had, at any rate, made one discovery which was in itself absolutely bewildering. At first I had doubted that this sweet-faced, clear-eyed woman was actually identical with the dead form that lay back in her chair on the previous night. I believed that she only bore some striking resemblance, heightened perhaps by the agitated state of my mind. But all doubts on this point had been set at rest by one fact. The woman whose cold hand I had grasped had worn in her bodice a brooch of unusual pattern, a tiny enameled playing card, a five of diamonds quaintly set in gold, and this same ornament, striking on account of its originality of design, was at the throat of Ava Glasslyn showing plainly against the dead black of her dress. The mystery was certainly most remarkable. In wonder how Boyd had fared, or whether Patterson had been prosecuting inquiries in other directions, I went straight to Kensington from Waterloo and found the inspector in his room over the police station. It was a small apartment with drab-painted walls plainly furnished as police stations are. The table whereat he sat was littered with papers, mostly pale straw color, and on the mantel-shelf stood an interesting collection of photographs of people wanted, each bearing a number in red ink corresponding to the index-book, wherein a short account of their crime was recorded. "'Why,' he cried as I entered, "'wherever have you been? I've been hunting high and low for you.' "'I've been down to Hampton,' I laughed. "'To Hampton?' he echoed. 
"'What on earth have you been doing down there?' "'Making inquiries,' I answered, affecting an air of unconcern. "'I've made a rather queer discovery.' "'What is it?' he asked, as I took a seat before him. "'I've found the woman whom Patterson and I discovered late last night, and the strangest part about it is that she's alive and quite well.' "'My dear fellow, are you mad?' he asked, looking at me strangely. "'People aren't in the habit of coming to life again, you know.' i'm well aware of that i responded nevertheless the fact remains that the woman seen by patterson and by myself is actually alive i met her in the park and followed her home to new hampton met her in the park he cried there was one woman i noticed fair-haired and dressed in black the same i answered fortunately i recognized her and kept her under observation then in response to his demand i related to him the whole circumstance in detail and her name he inquired when i had concluded ava glaslyn daughter of lady glaslyn glaslyn he ejaculated good heavens surely it can't be the same why the same i inquired oh nothing he answered evasively quickly seeking to allay my suspicions there was some mystery or scandal or something connected with that family once if i recollect all right i may however be mistaken in the name at any rate mr irwin you've acted with tact and discretion and discovered a most important fact what have you been doing i asked well he answered in hesitation the fact is i've had a somewhat exciting experience did you then discover the man i inquired anxiously i met a man but whether he was the one who made the appointment by telephone i don't yet know he said i waited until a quarter to one concealed behind some bushes and presently saw a grey-haired old gentleman well dressed in frock coat and silk hat strolling in my direction he was quite a dandy with well-pressed trousers varnished boots gold-headed cane and single eyeglass his air was that of a lawyer or doctor as if in search of someone he lingered in the vicinity subsequently sitting upon a seat at the very end of the lake the exact spot which had been indicated in what did you do i waited and watched there was no one near yet from his sharp glances in all directions I saw that he was in fear lest some one might approach whom he didn't wish to see. He appeared violently agitated, and at last, when he was entirely alone, he placed his hand in his inner pocket, took out something, and rising from the seat with a swift movement, cast the object far away into the water. Something he wanted to get rid of, suspicious, wasn't it? Of course, said the detective. After that you may rest assured that I didn't lose sight of him. When the object he had thrown away had fallen into the lake, he turned, and, glancing up and down in fear that his action might have been observed, he returned to his seat and waited until Big Ben struck again. Then he rose and left the park, strolling airily along the Buckingham Palace Road, peering a good deal under the bonnets of the pretty women who were looking in the windows of the shops. He entered the bar of Victoria Station, drank a whiskey and soda, and then, continuing along to Ebury Street, passed twice or three times up and down in front of a house on the left-hand side there were a number of people in that street at the time but the instant he thought himself unobserved he dived down the area of the house he kept passing and repassing in a moment i noted that the number was twenty-two and having done so placed a watch upon the house well satisfied that i had taken the first step towards unraveling the mystery remarkable i said i wonder what it was he threw away that's impossible to tell without dragging the lake and to do that at the present would excite suspicion he evidently went there in order to meet the assassin 
but as the latter did not keep the appointment this unknown object which might prove convicting if found upon him he resolved to get rid of and no better place could there be than at the bottom of the lake there's lots of pieces of evidence there you bet then there must be some mysterious connection between the appearance of eva glasland at that spot and this man who got rid of some evidence of the crime i observed most certainly the detective said it almost seems as though she came there for the purpose of meeting him but he being late she grew impatient and left before his arrival at every step we take the enigma becomes more complicated more extraordinary more bewildering End of chapter seven recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks dot com